Amen. Thanks, Brad. Uh, morning, River City Church. It's good to be here with you. Um, as Brad said, I am a pastor at Riverview um, in Lansing. I am the Westside Venue Director. So I oversee uh, one of our venues there. And I had the opportunity to lead ministry with, with Brad and Sarah um, before they planted uh, here in Grand Rapids and to lead ministry alongside many of you. So it's good to see you again. Um, a little bit about me. I have been married for 10 years uh, to my wife, Danielle, and we have two sons at home. I have a picture here of our family. Um, on the left is our methodical Lego building five-year-old named Jude. And on the right is our little wrecking ball of those Lego creations named Everett. Now, don't let that smile fool you. He will destroy anything you build. Um, so, um, but I grew up in Mason, Michigan, in the greater Lansing area, and I became a follower of Jesus in high school. So I was not raised in a Christian family, was raised in a moral home, uh, but was not a church-going home by any means. But I remember hearing the gospel. I remember hearing the truth of who Jesus is and, and why that mattered. And I remembered jumping all in when I was 15 years old. Um, and then I actually got plugged into Riverview. That was really my first church home, and I never left. I've been there for 18 years. Uh, my parents actually still live in the house that I grew up in, uh, in Mason, and I was over there the other week. And I was as I was spending time with them, I was kind of walking around. I don't know if you've gone back to the house that you grew up in, but when you walk into some rooms, memories flood back, you know, of like, oh, I remember when this happened there. And, and when I walked into my old bedroom, there was one memory that came to mind before any other because it was the stupidest decision I made um, as a young kid growing up in Mason. My friend and I, we were in third grade, and we were looking for something to do. Uh, this was before iPads and iPhones and all that stuff. So, um, but something I had seen my older brother do with great success is make prank phone calls. So... This was before everyone had a caller ID, okay? This was landlines. This is old school. Um, so we were thinking, hey, let's try it. So we started with friends, okay? And this was very, you know, simple stuff. So we would call. We'd just say everything they said back to us, like an echo, you know? And then we'd hang up. And we got a little more confident. We'd call random people and sprinkle in jokes, you know? Like, hey, is Mr. Wall there or Mrs. Wall? And they're like, no, there's no walls here. We're like, what's holding up your ceiling? Then we click and like high five and we're like, oh, we're getting good, you know? Um, I don't remember every phone call we made that day. I do remember the last one we made though. So my friend takes the phone and I'm confused at the beginning because he doesn't dial all the numbers. He just dials three of them. You know where this is going? Uh, he dials 911. So we put the phone up to our ear and 911, what's your emergency? And we don't say anything because we're, we're scared. We're like, oh, this got real, real fast. So we kind of make that noise you, don't, you make when you don't know what to say. You're like, uh, and then we hung up. That's not the noise you want to make to a 911 dispatcher because they're not there. They don't know. They think you're dying. So we're like, oh, my gosh, okay, hung up the phone. We got out of that one. Let's, be Let's go outside. I mean, this, this, it'll be more fun to go outside. Um, phone call comes back to us. We pick it up. 911, what's your emergency? They call us back. They think someone is in grave danger in our home. So I say, oh, there's no emergency. And they're like, we have an ambulance and police officers en route to your location right now. So 
what I'm thinking as an eight-year-old kid is I'm dead. I mean, like, this is it. This is it for me. I've got like an hour left on my tombstones because say, Tony Pyle, eight years old, terrible prank phone calls. I mean, that's, what, that's who I am. Um, so I do all I can do in that moment is I go find my dad. I'm like, dad, sorry. <laughs> you hand him the phone and we kind of creep out. And, um, you know, I don't really remember the rest of that day. It's kind of a blur to me. Um, they didn't show up, thankfully. My dad had kind of told them. Um, I don't remember the consequences I had for that, but I do remember the feeling. I remember that feeling of, of guilt, of, of shame, of just wondering, why would I do something like that? I, no one made me do that. <laughs> no one pressured me to do that. It was the decision that I made brought forward this feeling of guilt and shame for what I had done. And, and that feeling, it happens to all of us. I mean, no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, uh, we've all lived our lives and we've done things we've known were wrong, and we've had to deal with that feeling of guilt, of, of shame, of, of wondering, why am I doing that? And, and what happens sometimes is we begin to view ourselves, or we begin to view other people, or we even begin to view God himself in light of those decisions we've made, or maybe things that have happened to us. They begin to shape our view of the world. And, and the reason I tell you that story is because I think that story is pretty universal to all of us. I don't think anyone in this room can say, you know what, I've never felt that way. I've never dealt with that. And the reason I want to talk about that is because I want to look at why this is even a problem. How is this even part of our human experience? What's the solution? What's the answer to that? And I'm convinced that the answer is, is, is with us in the scripture. It's through who Jesus is and what he has actually done for us. So uh, we're going to be kind of jumping around uh, the Bible today, but we're going to start in the book of Ephesians. So if you have your Bible, you can open up to Ephesians chapter 2. And, and as you're getting there, I think we really kind of have to start in the very beginning of, of what this problem is. <laughs> you know, we have to look back. It's at the center of that story of when I was an eight-year-old kid. It's woven into our nature as human beings. It's this problem of sin. Now, if you've been raised in the church, um, if you're familiar with the Bible, that word sin is probably familiar to you. It's a Bible word. It's a church word. Uh, but if you haven't, if you were like me growing up, you wouldn't have known what that meant. You wouldn't have known what the preacher meant when he said sin. But, but sin, all it is, is it's any time that we fail to reflect God's image in our nature, in our attitude, or our actions. That's what sin is. And in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, this is a letter that Paul, this church planter in the New Testament, wrote to this church in Ephesus. And he's, for three verses, he's reminding them of who they used to be before they put their faith in Jesus. So this is Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Paul writes this, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air. The spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. So what these three verses do for us is they lay out the position of every human being that's ever been born into this world. Positionally, every single one of us, we're actually born very much alive in a physical sense, but we're born dead in a positional, spiritual sense. 
We're following the course of this world. We're carrying out the desires of our mind and our body. This is just who we are. We don't have to figure out how to do this. It's just we think it, we want to do it, and then we do. But then we see something happen in the next verse. We see a pivot. We see the answer to that problem. It's in verse 4. It says, but God. Not but you, not but the church, but God who is rich in mercy. Because of his great love that he had for us, he made us alive with Christ. Even though we were dead in trespasses, you are saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Now this verse, this whole chunk of verses, it's foundational to our lives as followers of Jesus. Because what it means is that if we believe in Christ, in what he did on the cross, in living a perfect life, dying, being crucified, raising from the dead for our sin, something happens. We are positionally changed. We're given new life in him. And that comes by faith. It comes from turning from our sins. There's another Bible word there, repenting. We repent, we turn away from our sin and toward Christ in faith. So that means we're positionally seated with Christ in the heavens, but we we still have to deal with the condition of who we are here on earth. Now, for many of us in our minds, this this kind of makes sense, okay? Maybe we were raised in the church, we we have a lot of Bible knowledge, and we kind of know, okay, yes, I, I get that. But there's an annoying kind of splinter in our brains that we have to deal with, and it's like, well, okay, how do we deal with sin now then? I mean, okay, we heard sin's a big issue. It's any time we live or act or think in a way that's not like God, but I've turned from that. I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to sin. I want to live for Jesus. I want to love my wife. I want to uh, reflect God to this world, but I still sin. This is still an issue for me. I know as a Christian, I know um, one of my big things that's really, it gets me, just, I hate it, is just how much of a hypocrite I can be. And I hear that about the church. I hear people say, I don't want to go hang out in that place full of hypocrites, where people say one thing and then they do another. But see, that's what we deal with, with sin, right? There are areas of my life I still do not reflect God, and it grieves me. So we have to wrestle with that question, what do we do with that, Now, historically, there's been a lot of different positions, theological positions about, okay, this is how sin, this is how you deal with it, or this is what it means now that you're a Christian. One of those those positions is this, is that once you're a Christian, or maybe God has initiated salvation in you, then it's kind of up to you to secure it. It's kind of like God hands you the baton and is like, all right, now it's up to you to become a Christian, Now, I want you to picture something with me for a second. So what that would be like is imagine being handed something extremely precious, extremely valuable, but also very fragile. Someone hands it to you and says, whatever you do, do not drop this. Okay, this is yours to keep. But if you break it, you're not going to get it back. How do you hold that thing? You're not like, okay. No, you're like, you're so tense and you're clasping it because you're like, I can't break this. That view of sin creates that kind of Christian life. God has handed you something very precious, very valuable, but very fragile. 
So if you start to sin, or if you start to kind of go back to the way you were, that thing's going to break. And the kind of life you live then is one of fear, of anxiety, of worry. Because you're like, have I lost it? Have I broken it? That's conditional salvation. It's salvation based on you and your performance and your obedience. There's another view that uh, is a little bit less prominent, but it's this idea of sinless perfectionism. That once you become a Christian, you're no longer able to sin. That somehow your sin nature is removed, you're, you're perfect, you're no longer needing to be sanctified and made to be more like Jesus. But that view leads to guilt. Because once you sin, you're like, man, I was never a Christian. Must not have been, because I still sin. See, these are only two of many positions on sin, but these two actually don't stand the test if you read the rest of the Bible. And one of those places that really highlights this is the book of Romans. So if you want to flip to Romans 6, this is really where we're going to camp out the rest of our time, Romans 6 through 8. And I'm going to give you a little bit of context of this letter before we jump into the text. So Paul wrote this letter to the church in Rome. He wrote the letter of Ephesians to the church in Ephesus. And Paul was raised in the Jewish faith. So the Jews had this blueprint for life that we have in our Old Testament called the law. This is what they lived by. This is everything they needed that God had given them. And Paul knew it. He knew the law. And one of his big things that we know about Paul is most of his life was spent persecuting Christians. He was a Jewish ruler, very smart, and did not like what the Christians were, were doing, pulling Jews away from their faith. But then God miraculously worked in Paul's life, and he became a Christian. And he became an author of much of the New Testament in these letters inspired by the Holy Spirit that he wrote to these churches. And, and one of the main thrusts of the letter of Romans is to encourage this church in Rome to be confident in their salvation and their continued um, assurance of their salvation. In the middle of the letter, he talks about this peace we have with God, how justification comes through Jesus and how sin came through Adam back in the garden. But then Paul talks about sin in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Look at the question he asks. What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Now that's a hypothetical question that Paul is asking. He's like, okay, if I'm not guilty. If that's how God sees me now, if Jesus has saved me from all my past, present, future sin, why don't I just continue to sin? Sin's fun sometimes, right? It's an escape. It's what we want to do. It's a great question, isn't, isn't it? I mean, this is a hypothetical question Paul asks, inspired by the Holy Spirit, because we ask it. We live this question out. How can I get the best deal here? Man, if I'm in God's hand, nothing's going to get me out. Let's have some fun. That's kind of what we think. So Paul says, why don't we just do that? Well, he answers the question in the next verse. Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in the newness of life. Do you see what Paul is saying there? He's saying, hey, if Jesus has set you free from the power of sin, 
why would you continue in that? He says, he uses this phrase, those who have died to sin. Now, when we think of that word die or death, we tend to think extinction. But the word actually there in the original language, it's more like separation. It's being separated from it. And this, this picture that this verse brings to mind with me is a prison cell. Imagine living your entire life in this 9 by 13 cell, bars, bathroom, all that stuff. But then one day the door opens and it's like, hey, you're free. You don't have to be here anymore. But the decision you make is, no, I'm going to stay. This is better than life outside of here. I'm convinced of that. That would be madness, wouldn't it? That's kind of what Paul is getting at here. Why would you live there when you're free? And as, as Paul writes this, uh, I kind of get this idea that, man, Paul must have this figured out. He must not really wrestle with this. He must be living in his freedom in Christ so strongly. If anyone's close to sinless perfection, it's got to be Paul. He's authoring the scriptures through the inspiration of God. But we actually don't see that Paul has it all together. He wrestles with his sin nature in a very deep way in the next chapter. Romans chapter 7, verse 15, Paul talks about how the law is meant to be a spotlight on sin. But then look at, just look at these nine verses. I'm going to read the whole thing. Uh, it's kind of long, but just track with me here. 7.15, for I do not understand what I am doing, because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me, that is in my flesh, hold on to that, for the desire to do what is good is with me, but there's no ability to do it. For I do not do the good I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do not do what I want, I'm no longer the one who does it, but it is the sin that lives in me. So I discover this law. When I want to do what is good, evil is present with me. For in my inner self, I delight in God's law, but I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Whoa. <laughs> right? You ever catch someone talking to themselves like this? My two-year-old son, Everett, wrecking ball, uh, he does this, and it's cute because he's two. Um, if you see an adult doing it, it's not cute anymore, right? You tend to like, all right, the guy's having a heated conversation with himself. All right, I'm going this way. Like, that's, that's what we do. But see, what's going on here? One chapter earlier, Paul reminded this church they are no longer enslaved to sin because of what Christ has done for them. But then he spends nine verses processing his own struggle with sin. Like, what, what's up with that? We see this dilemma, right? Paul says he wants to do what is right. I want to live for Jesus. I want to set my mind on those things. I want to be patient. I want to love people. I want to share the gospel. I want to be that, but I can't perfectly, or I'm not. And the problem is sin. We see that there's something he does not want to do, and he attributes it to his flesh. He says, it's no longer I who do it, but it's the sin that dwells within me. He says that twice. Have you ever felt like Paul? Have you ever had that conversation with yourself? 
why do I keep doing this? Why am I calling 911 right now as an eight-year-old when I can be watching The Sandlot? I mean, that's a, that's a way better decision. I mean, what am I thinking? Like, we ask these questions. Why do I keep looking at other people lustfully when I love my spouse? Why do I drink to the point to feel numb from the pain I experience? Why do I keep blowing up in anger towards people that have done nothing wrong to me? I want to do good. I want to love people. I want to love Jesus, but I keep doing the thing that I hate. What's going on? See, this passage is really encouraging for me because I feel like Paul sometimes. I have that internal conversation with myself. I feel that tension in my life of the old person I was before God saved me, warring with that new person. And that's what's happening. When someone becomes a follower of Jesus, something amazing happens. The scripture tells us that they are a new creation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. The old has passed, the new has come. What happens is the Holy Spirit, God himself, moves into our life. He dwells within us. But with that, we still have the old self. We have the flesh. We've got this part of us that wants to sin. So the Holy Spirit's like that new roommate that moves in. It's like, I'm never leaving. And the flesh is like, this isn't going to work. <laughs> right? We're going to war. We're going to be, no, this is a one-room apartment, dude. But now you're here. And this tension happens because God has saved us. It's his presence in us. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. He does the work of sanctifying us. What that word means is like going from a spiritual infant to spiritually mature over the course of our life. He helps us. He illuminates the scripture. Paul was a man whose life was marked by this truth. He had the spirit working in him, but he had the flesh that was doing things too. So we've begun wrestling with this question of, of sin, how it reveals itself in our lives. But, but what about this question? How does God think about us when we sin? I mean, we see in Romans 7, one of the, the heroes kind of of our faith struggling with this. It's going to happen. How does God think about us in those moments? How most of us answer that question, I think, is actually shaped by our human experiences how do other people react when we sin towards them? And then we think, well, God must react that way, right? That makes sense. It's logical. The first thing we often think is that God is very upset with us. That he's standing there and he's looking at us like, I knew it. I knew you'd do it again. And because of that, we feel guilty. When I became a Christian in high school, I was a baby, <laughs> really a baby Christian, and I was just on this guilt cycle all the time because I would wake up one day, and I would sin, and I'd be like, oh, I shouldn't do this anymore, and then I'd pray or talk to my friends about it, and then I'd go to bed and be like, oh, okay, and I'd wake up and I'd do it again, over and over and over again. I'm like, am I even a Christian? I mean, come on. What am I doing here? It was one of constant dread because every day I was like, I'm a failure. God must be so disappointed with me. I felt guilty. But guilt is not always a bad thing. 
See, guilt, actually, we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, um, can actually be a good thing. Godly guilt or godly grief. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly grief produces death. So what that's getting at there is, for a person to become a Christian, there's godly grief needs to be present first. <laughs> you need to understand your sin, your brokenness before God, and that leads you to repentance. But worldly grief is that, that grief of, oh, how am I going to look to my friends? What are they going to think about me? How's my reputation going to be tarnished here? It's not, I've sinned against a holy God. It's, I've got I've to be better. I've got to look good in front of people. And I really think, for me, it was some of both. But I could see how a lot of it was God working in my life as a younger Christian. God, I don't want to do this stuff anymore. This isn't life-giving for me. See, the problem though, is when we continue to feel guilty when we're free. When the prison cell is open, but we're convinced that that door shouldn't be open. No, I shouldn't leave. This is more where I should be. Close that door. See, the truth was I was no longer guilty before God. By faith, I was justified. Jesus' righteousness was given to me. I was hidden in Christ, but my feeling of guilt continued to suppress that joy in my life. So the first thing many of us think is, man, when we sin, God is so disappointed with us. The second thing we tend to think is that we think that God may punish us in the future. I did something wrong. God's not going to forget that. He's going to pay me back. I lashed out in anger toward my spouse or my kids or I lied to that person I care about. And because of that, watch out. God's not going to let that go. It's kind of that karma mentality, right? The third thing I think many of us think is, okay, I sinned. Now it's time for the hard work. I got to get back into God's graces somehow. I have to prove to him that I am seriously into this faith thing. Got to clean myself up. I have to prove to him that, God, I've changed my ways. I, haven't, I didn't sin today or I didn't struggle with that thing today. So look, I'm, I'm better. See, these are all typical human responses when we sin when we miss the mark, when we've done something wrong. But see, that's just not reflected. That's not God's posture toward us in the scripture. How does God think about us when we sin? The scriptures show us that God doesn't want us to live in that place of guilt and shame. He actually wants us to feel free because that is what we are if we're in Christ. We are seated in the heavenly places. That means we're free in him. We're free to do some things, but we're also free from some things. We're free from condemnation. Do you remember Paul's self-talk rant just a few minutes ago about how he did all this stuff he didn't want to do and doesn't do the stuff he wants to? He asked a question there. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And in typical Paul fashion, he likes to ask questions that he, that he answers himself. Um, this is Romans 7, verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind, I myself am serving the law of God, but with my flesh, the law of sin. He's talking about this, this battle. It's what it is. But then look at what he says in Romans 8. Therefore, whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, quick tip, ask what it's there for, okay? It's Silly, but um, it's, this is all in light of what he just said. Therefore, 
from my self-talk rant, here it is. There is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So who would deliver Paul? It's Christ. Jesus had saved him and was saving him from his flesh, the old self that desired to sin. And he's doing the same thing with us who believe. Our flesh will still want to sin, but thanks be to God for moving in, for changing us, for changing our spiritual position. But that that Romans chapter 8, verse 1, that is a verse we should all memorize. That is a core, core scripture of our faith. It's foundational. And we're just going to go real slow through it. There is therefore. That's a statement of fact. That's not, hey, there could be, maybe, hopefully. No, there is therefore now. Right now. Not when you get your act together. Not when you white knuckle your way out of sin. No, there is therefore now No condemnation. To be condemned is to have someone express their complete disapproval of who you are. It's to be sentenced to a particular punishment that you deserve. But this text says there is no condemnation. For who? For those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Christ you are positionally with him in heaven. That means you're not condemned. And if you're not condemned, if you're not sentenced to a particular punishment, what does that mean? You are free. You're not only free from condemnation, but we're also free from the eternal consequences of sin. Jump back to Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Paul writes, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood received through faith. This goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning. No one is free of a a sin nature. All have sinned but can be justified by his grace, by faith. Now, there's some aspects of God that we like talking about. I think, especially in like the American Western church, we love that, man, God is love. God cares for orphans and widows and their distress. We love those texts about Jesus with kids, welcoming them. It's like, no, this is the kingdom of God is for, for these. Like, we like that. That makes us feel good. But there's, there's some parts of God's character in the scripture that we're like, I'm going to skip that. One of those is the wrath of God. That a loving God could possess wrath doesn't compute logically in our minds. But imagine a God who didn't have wrath toward evil. That would be terrible. That's worse. We have a God, because he's perfect, and because he cannot be in the presence of sin, his wrath is holy, and it's justified. And when Jesus went to the cross, he satisfied the wrath of God. He took all of God's hatred towards sin onto himself. Do you remember what he said? God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced separation from his heavenly father when the sin of the world was put on him. 
There's a phrase in that passage of a, called, it says atoning sacrifice. There's other translations that use the word propitiation. That phrase or word carries this idea of appeasing the wrath of an offended person. While our sin rightfully brings about the wrath of God, Jesus gladly stepped in and said, I will take that for you. Now, while we're free of the eternal consequences of sin, we're not always free of the earthly ones. We broke the law. We made a mess of our marriage. We get caught in a lie. And we have to come clean. We have to deal with those consequences sometimes. And we can reflect Christ in how we respond in moments when we fail. I was reading a book recently in this this guy who is just a career criminal, um, drug dealing and all this stuff, he came to faith in Christ and he gets baptized at this church and the police are waiting for him outside the church because he's going to get arrested. But they let him get baptized in his new life in Christ. And then he walked out of the church and he went to jail. He didn't put up a fight. He didn't run away. He didn't say, why me? He's like, nope. To what I did. <laughs> but praise be to God for, for saving that guy, right? We're free from the eternal consequences of our sin, but oftentimes the earthly ones we, we deal with. And we can still trust God in those moments. Not only are we free from condemnation, but we're free to some things. We're free to love God. We're free to love other people. We're free to live in this freedom Christ has given us. So let's go back to the original question. What if I still sin? What do I do? Well, first take away the if in that statement. You're going to sin. The problem isn't that we just do sinful things. The problem is that we're sinful people and we do things. Okay? That's what it is. Every single one of us has this sin nature. It's coursing through us. It's, it's working to pull against the, the work of God in our lives. What comes out oftentimes are thoughts and words and actions that are tainted by that. But if we are following Jesus by faith, we have something else. We have the Spirit. The first thing we need to do is this. We need to remember our position. Remember who you are. Now, for me, I don't remember a lot of things that I need to remember, so my phone helps me. <laughs> With that Reminders app, that, that thing gets so much use. Um, but one thing you could even do, if this would help you, um, I think it would, open up your Reminders app and set a reminder to remind you at the same time every single day. And what you should write there is, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. What if Romans 8.1 showed up on your phone every day at the same time to remind you of what was true? It would help. If you've put your faith in Christ, you've been set free from the eternal consequences of sin. But I want to acknowledge something here this morning. What if you haven't done that? I know that some of us in this room, you may not be Christian. You know, maybe you've heard about Jesus. Maybe he sounds like a good guy. You're not convinced. You're not convinced of your need for him. You're okay if other people choose to be a Christian. It's not your thing. Maybe something in your life has happened, a decision you've made or something that's happened to you that just you can't, you can't put it together. I can't understand how God can be loving 
because of this. I don't know where you're at. I do know that some of us may be there. But wherever you are with how you view Jesus, whether or not you believe, you are not free of that tough truth of everyone being born with a sin nature. You're like followers of Jesus in that. If you haven't turned from your sin and put your faith in Christ and what he did for you, you're still positionally seated here on earth. You're spiritually dead. As it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, your life has this sinful debt that continues to build every day. And when you get that growing credit card bill in your email inbox, you delete it or you archive it, convinced, ah, not a big deal. I'll pay it off eventually. But every month it shows up without fail and it gets gets bigger because you keep swiping the card. Unless someone takes that bill and pays it, at the end of your life, you will be caught holding the check. What Jesus did was he went to the cross was he offered to take that debt from you to sign his name where yours should be. And after he pays for it, you never see the bill again. You open up your inbox, ready for it, and it's not there. It's paid in full. That bill gets paid by handing it to Christ in faith. By saying, yeah, I can't. I can't pay it. If you believe this, you can have joy in knowing that your life is debt-free before God. But as you grow in your faith, as you're an infant, as you're crawling, as you're starting to take steps, and as you grow into maturity, Satan will try to convince you otherwise. The prince of the power of the air. He's in Ephesians 2. Paul writes that. The scriptures also say that Satan is a father of lies and he is a deceiver. And the target of those lies and deception is Christians. Why? Well, it's easy. He wants you to remain enslaved to guilt and to shame. He doesn't want you to feel free. He's going to tempt you to disbelieve what's true about you. But if God has saved you, you can have assurance that he's not just handed you this precious, fragile thing and said, good luck. No. Your salvation is not conditional. It is not being perfected by your obedience and, and, and having it just be you white-knuckling it. It's like, I'm going to drop this thing. I know it. No, it's not conditional. It is unconditional. What God has started and done in you, he will finish. You will never attain sinless perfectionism in this life here on earth. You're going to fall a lot. And then you're going to get back up. You're going to fall again. And you're going to get back up. And that does not mean you're not a Christian. You will be perfect in glory when you're with Christ. What in your life makes this difficult to believe? Is it that your current sin, your struggle is too great? That your past is is just too marked with bad decisions? Man, that God must be so disappointed with you and how your life has turned out. Whatever you're saying to yourself or whatever you're convincing yourself of, don't let it cause you to forget where you're seated right now. And I don't mean River City Church. I mean seated spiritually. While you still will wrestle with your sinful condition, you are seated next to Jesus himself in the heavenlies. 
I had a conversation with my parents uh, about that 911 phone call I made as I was preparing this message. I'm like, hey, Dad, you remember that? He's like, yes, I do. I remember that. Um, I remember how I felt that day. I remember feeling guilty because I was guilty. But I also remember in the midst of all of it, I never worried that my position as a son would be lost. I didn't go to bed that night thinking, I hope I'm still part of this family tomorrow. Never happened, never crossed my mind. Yeah, there were consequences I had to deal with, but I woke up that next day confident that I was still a son. We have that same security as followers of Jesus. We don't need to live in, in fear that our sin's going to cancel out what Jesus did for us, that when we miss the mark that we've dropped this fragile salvation. Even in our worst moments, when we fail to reflect God in, in, in our nature, in our attitude, in our action, if we've put our faith in Jesus, we should never doubt that we are a part of God's family. Being a part of God's family means that we are in the shepherd's hand. He will never let us go. We can live free from guilt because we have been justified by Jesus' work for us, not our own. We can love people. We can reflect that love that we've been shown by God, and we can enjoy the life God has given us, secure as sons and daughters forever. Let's pray. Let these passages of your word just come into my own heart and my own mind. God, I'm so, so thankful for the permanent and lasting work of Christ. God, when he was on the cross and he said, it is finished, he is the only one that could say that because he is the only one that could do anything about our sin. God, I thank you that there is no condemnation right now for those of us who are in Christ. When we're convinced that, that we're dirty or that we're wrong or that how could you love us, God, I pray you help us remember our position. We are sons and daughters secure in your hand. And God, for those of us who, who may not believe that, I pray that you help them. Help them see that you are the way and the truth and the life. That no one comes to the Father but through you. God, thank you for your work for us. Thank you that you love us. And thank you that we are free in Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.